0: Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. In this talk from the 2023 Montreal Marxist Winter School, IMT activist Ted Sprague discusses the lessons of the Indonesian Revolution.
1: So let's start with my childhood story. So back in the 80s, so I was barely 10 years old, I think. I remember something very vividly. Every night on the 30th of September, I Um. got to uh, uh, stay up very late, very, very late actually, and get to watch a horror movie. Starts around 8, finish 12. It's a very long horror movie. And the movie is titled The Treachery of the Indonesian Communist Party, PKI, (laughs) stands for PKI really the the movie is it's really it's a horror movie it shows how evil the communists are they kidnap the generals they kidnaps the santri which is a uh, muslim uh, leaders they uh, torture them gouge their eyes and the communist women are, are were the worst there dance to dance half nakedly they seduce you to communism and kill you it was a really traumatic movie for for me okay. and that's what happens during that time every night on the 30th of September, the state sponsored movie. Everyone has to watch it. You don't have a TV. They will gather the whole village in a, in a hall or like they have a, a public viewing. You okay. have to watch it. And that's the extent of sort of the anti-communist reaction at that time. So the 30th September, 1965, and that's a pivotal date for the history of Indonesia. It's the date of the downfall of the PKI. Uh, and it's a tragic defeat because you have this party with a 3 million members. This close to taking power, at least in appearance, and within a night, reduced to a ruin. This defeat opened the most horrific military dictatorship in Indonesia for 32 years. Uh, so this is uh, what we're trying to study today. Trotsky wrote that the historical crisis of mankind is reduced to the crisis of revolutionary leadership. That's the essence of today's presentation and the whole uh, weekend. Question of leadership. Question of building a revolutionary party. Quick with the correct idea, program, method, and tradition. The most glorious confirmation, positive confirmation of this is the Russian Revolution. The leadership of Lenin and Trotsky led to the victory of the Russian Revolution. We heard from the plenary session where Alex talked about uh, the important part of the history of that party. Summarizing that single statement, what is to be done. But at the other end of the spectrum is the most tragic defeat of the PKI. And very little actually is known about this counter-revolution. Many people perhaps know the chronology, but the why that's missing, even amongst Indonesian activists. And this is more than just a a defeat. This is a complete eradication of the proletariat movement. A whole history of class struggle was eradicated for generations. And that toll is up to 2 million people were massacred. After the defeat in 1965, but we're not here to mourn, to weep, or to lament. We're here to understand. We're here to learn from this mistake. This we heard it. from Alex what is to be done. This is about what is not to be done. Because oftentimes, I think we get a better understanding of what's to be done by learning what's not to be done through mistakes. We learn a lot. This is a very expensive mistake. So to start to to learn about 1965, we do have to go back to the birth of Pekai, to the first period of Pekai. So, Indonesia was colonized by Dutch uh, from 1600 to 1945. And this colonization formed the earliest basis for capitalism. And from the 17th to 19th century, Indonesia was exploited largely uh, via looting, very much looting, yeah. Uh, And there there was really hardly any capital investment. But this changed in the uh, late 19th century as capitalism entered its highest stage, uh, which is called imperialism. And Lenin explained that one of the features of imperialism is the export of capital. The whole market in the advanced capitalist countries have already been exhausted. But there's a drive to open up new markets. There's a drive to open up new area of investment. And this transformed the character of colonization. From one of primitive looting to one where the colonial powers are driven to invest and develop the economies of the colonies. So, starting around 1870, Dutch imperialism began exporting capital into Indonesia, building roads and highway uh, railways, setting up plantations and factories. In essence, capitalism was artificially grafted in Indonesia. Like Marx said, the need of a constantly expanding market chases the bourgeoisie over the entire surface of the globe. Settle everywhere, establish connection everywhere. In one word, it creates a world in its own image, but not quite in its own image. This is very important here. Capitalism was grafted artificially. So it will determine then the character of the colonial bourgeoisie, very important, and we'll return to this later. So with imperialism, then you also see the rise of nationalism, Mm. as imperialism created the basis for nation states and national identity in the colonized world. But the most important implication of imperialism is the creation of new modern classes, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. As Dutch imperialism built railways and factories, they also built, uh, brought into existence, the first proletariat. And on, on the other side, it also created the colonial bourgeoisie. This colonial bourgeoisie were mainly made of small traders. They hated the Dutch because they were oppressed, truly dependent on the Dutch for their trade. The Dutch also drew from this layer of a uh, uh, layer called priyayi uh, to, to run the colonial administration. Kriyai is a court officials of, of the old Indonesian kingdoms that were defeated. A bureaucratic layers that then served the Dutch as their lackeys. This layer, very slavish to the Dutch who later also become the bourgeoisie. Truly determines the character of the Indonesian bourgeoisie. Slavish dependence on the foreign capital, which will determine the course of the future revolutions in Indonesia. So we talk about the rise of the Polter in in uh, Indonesia. By early 1900, there was a ferment in the Indonesian society. We're seeing class struggle emerging side by side with national struggle. Just to give a highlight like how, how important this development is. In 1913, a Dutch-owned sugar company in Java put out the following notice in many newspapers. They wanted, with an eye of a rising unrest amongst the native populace, a capable military officer willing to advise the management of several large enterprises to prepare against attack. And this notice really, I think, captured the uh, the state of mind of the Dutch ruling class. There's a probable fear of a revolution, a spectre of revolution. And it is during that time you have the formation of many mass organizations and political parties and trade unions, their wave of strikes and peasants disturbances. And it was during this wave, the first wave of class struggle in Indonesia that PKI was born. It was born in 1920 and was also inspired by the October Revolution that just happened three years earlier and immediately became a mass party. The Pekai became the main forces for the national liberation struggle because the petty bourgeois and the bourgeois nationalists were too cowardice in their struggle against the Dutch. They limited themselves to moderate reforms, they always ready to compromise with the Dutch. Meanwhile, the Pekai brought together the class struggle and the national struggle together. It was still able to it was able to link the national struggle to the working class struggle. So the Pekai was born in 1920. That was at the very height. Of the revolutionary movement in Indonesia, and unfortunately, immediately after that, the movement started entering into a low period. As a period of setbacks, we have major strikes defeated one after another, culminating in the uh, massive defeat of the 1923 railway strike union. The railway workers union is the uh, uh, the largest and most advanced union in Indonesia. Uh, unfortunately, PKI was at that time was too young and too unexperienced. Mm-hmm. It's really a party of young yeah. people. I mean, mo- most of the members are even younger than people here. The leader of PKI, uh, his name is Samoun. He was 21 years of age at that time. And these young communists had the important quality of Bolsheviks. They have the enthusiasm, they have the energy. The very sense. important qualities. But they did not possess the comprehensive understanding of the theory of Marxism and this will prove fatal because seeing seeing the movement ebbing instead of regrouping instead of retreating in order they actually went to the ultra left direction they believed that they could reignite that movement with just sheer willpower with uh, just agitations so they launched a uh, push in ni- uh, November tw- 1926, with the expectation that the masses will be inspired into general uprising. The masses did not respond. The ill-prepared adventurism was quickly smashed. 13,000 communists and labor uh, activists were imprisoned, exiled, or even sentenced to death. The party was completely decimated, and it took another 20 years before it reemerged again. So. Uh, the young communists definitely had yet to absorb Marxism and you cannot blame them. It just came into being in 1920, right. admittedly faced with the task of leading a mass movement against the Dutch colonization. But defeats and setbacks can be very important. It's a very valuable experience if we can learn from it. Unfortunately, the, the young PKI was never given the opportunity to learn from that because at the same time, uh, the PKI, at the same time PKI was defeated, you see the rise of Stalinism, which we'll talk about tomorrow. In short, the Stalin and the bureaucracy had began consolidating its power. Communist International was degenerating. So in China Stalin instructed the, uh, the Chinese Communist Party in 1925 to follow uh, to form an alliance with the bourgeoisie comintang. And this class collaboration was dis- disastrous and resulted in the massacre of the Chinese communists. What did Stalin and the Stalinists do? They yeah. went all the way to ultra-left direction in order to cover their opportunist betrayal in China. How do they see revolution everywhere. The failed push in Indonesia that was clearly adventurism now suddenly become, become a genuine revolution from below. It was seen as a sign that uh, the whole world is now entering into ultra-revolutionary situation when the reality was the opposite. This marked the beginning of the, uh, uh, the ultra-left madness called the third period. But this is typical of Stalinism, the zigzag in their policy. Please. So the young PKI was not afforded the opportunity to, to learn from their mistakes. Furthermore, what's important is the Stalinist bureaucracy began... Introducing a bureaucratic method into the party Instead of allowing the party to learn from their mistake To clarify themselves, uh, to clarify their uh, uh, mistakes politically They remove people From up high in, Mo- in Moscow uh, The Comintern said that the uprising failed Because some leaders were just not adequate they even blame some leaders who did not support it. They said like, because you didn't support it, it failed. They were made scapegoat for the failed uprising, branded as a party wrecker and they're branded as, anyone knows? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. This will become the method in all communist party later on. bureaucratic method to solve political questions, promoted yes men, obedient fools. And this is complete opposite of Lenin's method to patiently explain, to clarify politically, and to raise the political level of the caterers. So when PKI emerged again later in 1945, whatever link it had to the revolutionary Marxism, to the genuine tradition of October Revolution, had been severe. The bureaucratic degeneration of Soviet Union, of the Comintern spelled a disaster for the development of many young communist parties at a time. So let's fast forward to 1945. we had the end of the World War II. And when the Allied forces won the war, they thought like, well, we'll get back Indonesia and other colonies easily. But the war sparked a colonial revolution across the world. The Allied forces, the France in Vietnam, uh, Indochina, the uh, Dutch in uh, Indonesia, they f- were faced with a mass uprising of the oppressed people. And in, in Indonesia, leading this uh, independence movement is the bourgeois nationals' leader like the uh, Sukarno. So these bourgeois nationalists, you know, you will see again and again, they're always vacillated. They're always indecisive about the struggle. They always want to compromise to the imperialism. Again, we come back again, the character of the colonial bourgeoisie, Slavist dependence to foreign capital. So Sukarno, for example, after Japan uh, surrendered on 15 August, Sukarno was too afraid to proclaim independence. He wanted to get permission from Japan first or the allied forces. But the youth, the radical youth, kidnapped him and forced him to proclaim independence. And so on 17 of August 1945 he reluctantly proclaimed independence. Like and a- this proclamation immediately sparked a revolution, the August revolution. Masses immediately took matters into their own hands. So- they formed militias, they formed defense committee. Suddenly you have mass political parties, we uh, got uh, 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 mass organizations form everywhere. Dozens and dozens of newspapers, journals, radio stations was spontaneously Created by the masses. Now the question of power was posed, and the masses are discussing this. Now we have power. What to do with it? What kind of power we want? And the Dutch return uh, to claim Indonesia, bringing 135,000 soldiers. So thus began the War of Independence from 1945 to 49. And just like any everywhere, the independence movement immediately split into two camps. On the right hand, you have the bourgeois nationalists under the Sukarno government. Their policy is always diplomacy. They agreed to return all Dutch companies and uh, uh, plantations, which would practically mean subordinating Indonesian economy under the thumb of imperialism. They were even open to being part of Dutch Commonwealth. Because as long as the colonial bourgeoisie can have a, size, a slice of the pie, they don't mind being under Dutch. On the other camp on the left is the revolutionaries. It's made up of various socialist leaning organizations, their own people's militia, a very loose organization. But the slogan is 100% independence. Their main program is that all Dutch companies, all Dutch properties have to be nationalized, which would mean nationalization of all commanding heights of the economy. And there's a direction towards socialism. And the argument is simple for the people to understand. As long as our economy is still under Dutch and foreign control, we're not really independent. So well, while the, the program of this, uh, this camp is very confused, it actually consciously, <clears throat> unconsciously following the, uh, the pressure from below, from the workers and peasants. Well, and also unconsciously following the idea of Leon Trotsky of permanent revolution, that you cannot separate national liberation struggle from socialism. So PKI re-emerged again in 1945. Yes. Like I mentioned, it has become a Stalinist party by that time. So PKI found itself actually supporting the bourgeois nationalist government, supporting the policy of diplomacy with the Dutch. Because uh, after the end of the war, they were still following the Moscow policy. The Moscow policy of coexistence and compromise with the allied forces. And also policy of supporting so-called progressive bourgeoisie. So Moscow policy after the uh, end of the uh, World War II is basically to make sure that Colonial revolution did not provoke the Allied powers in a way that doesn't compromise. Did not compromise the position of the Soviet Union because, as we remember, in Yalta Conference 1944, Stalin already made a concessions with Roosevelt and Churchill. Stalin had agreed of dividing the world. Certain countries will be falling under Soviet Union influence and certain countries will fall under the influence of imperialism and in general the colonies are to be returned to the rightful owner because the Bosco bureaucracy saw their own survival as the most paramount concern so Pekai was instructed port national bourgeois make concession to Dutch and the western imperialism and the Pekai that just re-emerged were instructed to make sure that the colonial revolution is in a safe channel And the ideological justification is the two-stage theory. And this is presented as Marxism. The whole idea is that Indonesia is not ready for socialist revolution yet. The first stage is the completion of the bourgeois democratic revolution by supporting then, of course, the national bourgeoisie. Only after that, sometime in the future, you can enter the second stages. The the second stage, which is socialist revolution. So the two-stage theory, uh, I'll touch a bit on this. Uh, Is the main... Ideological pillar of Stalinism. It's the official ideology of all communist parties. It's originally actually a Menshevik theory, if you think about it. The Menshevik argue against the October Revolution ex- using exactly that theory that Russia was too backward, that therefore the proletariat had to support the liberal bourgeoisie and limit itself to bourgeois democratic revolution. Oh. Menshevik had a mechanical, rigid understanding of Marxism. Yep. History in a rigid line. You have Feudalism, to capitalism, to socialism. You cannot skip stages. But the phenomenon of imperialism actually had disrupted that in Renewal Rhine. The emergence of powerful capitalist countries that dominate the world had blocked off the development of colonial bourgeoisie. So the colonial bourgeoisie is then tied to imperialism and also tied to landlordism. They had become incapable of completing the bourgeois revolution. They're Indo- no longer like their counterparts in England and France 200, 300 years ago. This task, then, the task of bourgeois democratic revolution, then fall to another class. In this case, to the new modern proletariat class. But the thing is, the moment the proletariat starts solving the question of uh, national bo- national revolution, it had to immediately move to socialist revolution. Please. That would be pushed to pass over to the socialist task in a one permanent process. And that's the key idea of Leon Trotsky: permanent revolution. That was confirmed by the October Revolution. Now by 1947, in the middle of the war, Moscow changed again their policy. Surprise, surprise. Uh, because the USSR came out of the World War II enormously strengthened. The whole Eastern Europe went communist. There was a wave of revolution everywhere. But all of this took place in spite of the Stalinists. In fact, the Moscow did not want a world revolution. Remember when Stalin was asked uh, by journalists uh, that... Is Moscow supporting a world revolution? Stalin said, oh, it's a misunderstanding, a tragicomic misunderstanding, but it happened anyway. And this created a very dangerous situation for the US imperialism, who was forced then to go on the offensive and began the Cold War. And Moscow had to abandon the old policy of concessions. A new telegraph was sent to the PKI, reject negotiation with the Dutch, fight okay. for complete independence. So this actually then put Pekai, indirect opposition to the Bourgeois nationalist government. In addition to that, what's happening during the war is the masses are moving more and more to the left. Non, le processus qui s'est produit durant la guerre est que les masses se sont déplacées de plus en plus à gauche. They had become disillusioned by the policy of diplomacy of the government. Ils devaient trouver des solutions to politiques de, de, de diplomatie du gouvernement. Because by 1947, Indonesia was left with just a small part of Java Island. So by aligning themselves with the government, the Pekai was losing its support. So they're now zigzag to the left. They launched a premature, upri- premature uprising in Madiun in 1948. It was easily crushed and all their leaders were executed. Uh, for reasons I'm not going to uh, describe here, the bourgeois nationalist government finally able to crush the opposition. And thousands, thousands, thousands of militia fighters who were deemed to revolutionary were hunted down and killed. December 27 and nineteen forty-nine, after a four-year long war, Indonesia finally won their independence. Balance. But with these two conditions. Uh they have to return all Dutch companies, plantation, minings, oil fields, and they had they had to pay war reparations to the sum of four three four point three billion guilders. A war that they didn't even start. Didn't they win? Because they actually win the independence. So, so you see the Borduasi had sold Indonesia to the Dutch. While Indonesia gained formal independence, its economy is under the thumb of Dutch imperialism. The they national revolution was betrayed, but it had yet to lose its momentum because the task of the national democratic revolution has yet to be completed. And the, the, these tasks are mainly the formation of a sovereign nation, land reform for the peasants, and establishment of the democratic republic. And the incompletion of these tasks resulted in an ongoing social crisis. And this opened a new chapter in the Indonesian revolution. So while Sukarno government managed to crush the revolutionary opposition, it was still too weak to actually establish a stable regime. Constitutional crises followed one after another. Cabinets were put together only to be disassembled later. For example, from 1949 to 1959, there are 10 different cabinets. So the government finally held election in 1955. The result even more uh, more, uh, uncertainty. No no political party won more than a quarter of the vote, not even Sukarno's party, the Indonesian National Party. So you have coalition government after coalition government after coalition governments, just like in Italy. And this finally led Sukarno to scrap the constitution, to dissolve the assembly and to cancel elections. And uh, this opened up the period called Bonapartism, where Sukarno rose as this uh, single leader who balanced between different forces in the society. And one part of the equation that allowed Bonapartism to develop is the inability of the proletariat to conclude the class struggle. The leadership of the PKI was largely responsible for this. It espoused the two-stage theory, it supported Sukarno, forming a popular front with the so-called progressive bourgeois, effectively disarmed the proletariat. So after being crushed in 1948, the Communist Party re-emerged again, re-emerged even way stronger and way bigger. The reason is clear, the Indonesian society was still in Ferment, the workers and peasants were still looking for revolutionary solution to their pressing problems. Despite all the mistake of PKI, PKI was still seen as a revolutionary organization. So in the election 1955, PKI won 16% of the vote. And if that's quite evil. amazing for a party that was just crushed seven years ago. The influence of the party grew rapidly even. In the 1957 local election in Java, it became the first party. And Java is pretty much the political and economic center of the whole Indonesia. By 1960s, it had 3 million members already. And up to 10 million members in its various mass organization, trade unions, youth, women's organization. Yeah, It had cabinet members, it had local councillors everywhere. It was really in a position to take power. Way better position than the Bolshevik in 1917. PKI refused to take power. In fact, it actually uh, uh, support the bourgeois government under Sukarno. The whole idea is that the main enemies is feudalism and imperialism. Thus their task is seen to be uniting all the anti-imperialist, anti-feudal forces, including the bourgeoisie. And this theory really picked, tied PKI hand and foot to the bourgeoisie. Because in order to maintain this front with the progressive bourgeoisie, PKI actually instructed their workers to avoid strikes. And there's a number here, I'll quote here. In 1955, there were 469 recorded strikes that involved 239,000 workers. But by 1962 all the way to 1965, there were zero strikes. No more strikes. So, Begai put the class struggle aside and subordinating it with the national struggle. It refused to recognize class struggle. Eventually, class struggle re-recognized PKI. They did so violently. Ils frappé uh, Je vais parler des paysans, c'est très important. The, la question de la terre était très importante dans la révolution italienne parce because it's a nation agraire avec une grande population paysanne. Just like anywhere, lands are concentrated in the few hands of the landlords. You so, have the poor peasants heavily burdened with a, a, a very high land rent. Many had become landless worked as a sharecroppers. And the sharecropping agreement Usually, left them nothing by the end of the day. Those who still own land did not have it enough to sustain themselves. There's a tremendous pressure from the peasants for a revolutionary situation. Now on paper, Pekai gave lip service to the peasants, but the PKI had tied their hands to the bourgeoisie, who in turn are lang- linked to land- landlordism. Because in Indonesia and many colonial worlds, the bourgeoisie usually are the landlords themselves. Therefore, to maintain the national front, Pekai could only limit themselves to very moderate reforms. They only fight for a very modest rent reduction, uh, uh, very modest land redistributions, just a better sharecropping agreement. So finally, in 1960, Sukarno government passed a land reform. It was a very moderate land reform that was agreed even by all the capitalists and landlord party. And PKI also voted for it because they want to prove themselves that they are a good ally. But the new land, form, land reform bill was very toothless, actually. Even the landlords resisted the application of it. And they were protected by local government officials, dragged their feet and not implemented and by 1963, there was a drought, there was a famine, crop failure, there was a mass hunger in uh, uh, peasant areas. This eventually pushed the peasants to action in 1964, what was known to be aksi or the unilateral action. So, not waiting for the government, not waiting for Pekai, the peasants took matters into their own hands. They confiscated the lands from big landlords, distributed it among themselves. They refused payment of rents, began to move spontaneously. You have lower uh, level party caters also give expression to that discontent. So you have violent clashes spreading from village to village. At first, the Pekai leadership uh, supported or defended, actually not supported, defended these unilateral actions saying that, oh, well, this is because there's no implementation of the land reform. Mm-hmm. But as the peasant conflict spread and spread and become more violent, it became obvious that this is heading into an open revolutionary uprising. And the peasant actions began to threaten that unity of the national front. The but unity that the Pekai so cherished. And because of that, I did the leaders of the Pekai began to take a step back. Because they're afraid that these peasant actions, this uprising will go beyond the neat scheme. They have this very neat scheme that they had already prepared beforehand. So they tried to calm the peasants pouring cold water into this uh, 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 class struggle that's breaking out in all the villages, yes. strutted their pe- peasant activists and caters to follow government procedures. They have a concern, consult with the government bodies and constantly harp, constantly talk about the importance of maintaining national unity. And the uh, argument, as always, US imperialism, it's just across the, uh, the sea. So by early 1965, the peasant action had subsided. An excellent opportunity was missed. I don't want to even say it's missed. It's actually deliberately snuffed out for the sake of national unity. And this actually further emboldened the counter-revolutionary forces. So by 1965, by mid-1965, the political atmosphere has reached its boiling point. Everyone knows that something is going to happen. Tout le monde quelque chose that something is imminent to happen. Eventually one side had to win the revolution or the reaction and the PKI had postponed the revolution actually stopped workers strike and just uh, half a year before they actually put a stop to the peasant actions. It has lost initiative, lost the moment, the right moment to strike. So in September 1965, uh, I did and the leadership uh, heard rumors about imminent coup by the right-wing generals. At that time, you know, situation is already so tense. There are many rumors, but instead of Issuing an open call to the workers and the peasants to, uh, to, uh, say go on general strike. Instead of calling the soldiers to a mass of soldiers to disarm reactionary officers, they use a conspiratorial palace revolution. So on the night of 30th September 1965, I mobilized his clandestine organization to kidnap and remove anti communist generals, six of them. And, and he imagined that he could neutralize counter-revolutionary threat by simply replacing these generals. You remove this anti-communist general and replace it with someone who's more sympathetic. And revolution is seen from an administrative point of view, instead of actually a struggle of living forces. In fact, this is in line with Pekai's theory about state. Just a year before, I did, came up with a new theory of state. So the state composed of pro-people and anti-people aspect. You just remove the anti people and add the pro people algebraic formula for revolution but the thing is revolution is not fought like that and now the armed forces that seized this initiative they presented the killing as a coup attempt by PKI and really in war and also in revolution and counter revolution it is important to mass your attack as a defense remember that's what Uh, the Bolshevik and Trotsky did Uh, the October Revolution was a defense of the second Congress of the Soviet but now the ruling class had the pretext to move ahead against PKI and presented this as a move to save the nation and save the revolution and a new Bonapartist rose Lieutenant General Suharto Let's say it's again, so it doesn't matter you remove any generals, someone will always replace them. So he began rounding up communists and mobilizing anti-communist parliamentary forces. So we already thought that at least there's a resistance from the PKI members. There was no resistance because PKI was never ready for revolution. For exactly that reason, it was never ready for counter-revolution. It became paralyzed in the face of reaction. The wave of violence against PKI in the next one year met no resistance at all. So seeing the collapse the failure of his palace revolution, Aidit left Jakarta and went into hiding. Aidit is the leader of the Communist Party in Indonesia. But he left, went into hiding without giving any order to the party as to what to do. He remained underground for 2 months in because he patiently waited for Sukarno to save the situation because that's the party program, supporting Sukarno and Sukarno will protect you. But Aidit actually afraid to call upon the masses into action. Because he could have easily issued an order, for example, to the railway workers to block the trains of the army, army, to the mechanics to sabotage the jeeps, the trucks, the tanks that the army has, to the peasants to block the roads to and from army barracks, to party members to form self-defense militia. And PKI had many supporters amongst the rank and file soldiers, could have called them to resist. With such call, the Suharto troops would have melted away. But doing this would have meant going on offensive. It would trans- transcend the limit of the National Democratic Revolution. It's a step toward taking power. It would have meant Trotskyism. A sin far greater than anything else for Aidit and the Pekai leaders. So Aidit hid for two months while members of the uh, his party were arrested and start disappearing. Finally, he was arrested. Executed right away and buried in an unknown location. Tragic and cowardice I think, end for a leader of the third communist, uh, third largest communist party in the world. Meanwhile, other P- PKI leaders they met with Sukarno a week after the uh, uh, the 30th September, and Sukarno urged them remain calm. And in his usual Bonapartist manner, he said, "I'll take care of everything. Don't worry." And the urging means that the PKI should not call on the masses to resist. The PKI leaders follow that instruction. So. PKI leaders ho- were hoping that Sukarno will use his authority to rein in the army, but it turned out the emperor had no clues. Sukarno has played his role to disarm the masses and the PKI ideologically. Now the ruling class needed another Bonapartist leader to complete the job, General Suharto. So as a consequence, you, you can imagine this, it's-, it's hard to imagine. In the initial few months, many communists actually willingly turned themselves into the police stations and army barracks, believing that Sukarno so would save them. But no one was coming to help them. They were immediately marched into a slaughterhouse. Pekai leadership collapsed and paralyzed, left their members uh, defenseless. So in the next one year, you see a white terror like not, nothing ever seen before. The number is hard to estimate. Up to 2 million members of Pekai and supporters uh, were massacred. To understand, Pekai was the uh, third largest Communist party in the world, third Soviet Union and China, deep roots in the society. So to uproot this mass party and its influence, you need a genocidal massacre. Can hear all the uh, journalistic reports during that time. Killings have created actually a sanitation problem in the river. Go to villages uh, around the river, main river in Java, and you will hear stories that there are, one, there are times that the river were clogged up by the bodies and it, they have to actually, you know, uh, unclog it killing needed to inflict a multi-generational trauma. Find the working class, the price that they had to pay if they dare stand up. And there's nothing unique about this, of course. Every ruling class from epoch to epoch had done so. The Roman Empire, after this uh, crushing the Spartacus slave uprising, took the 6,000 slaves who were captured, crucified them along the 200-kilometer open way to Rome, uh, and left the bodies there for years as a reminder to everyone. So the history of class society is really soaked in the blood of the defeated, and Western imperialism could not hide their joy in this bloodletting. If Indonesia went communist, the whole Southeast Asia region could have gone communist as well. Time magazine reported this as the best news for the West, uh, the best news for the West in Asia for many years. The New York Times wrote, "A glimmer of light in Asia." And this really opened the period, 32 years period of military dictatorship. In Indonesia from the, uh, the beacon of hope in the region become the fortress of reaction in Southeast Asia. So what is the lessons here? The PKI had 3 million members. They had 10 million members in various mass organizations, trade unions, passenger union, women uh, artists union, they even have like uh, intelligence union. And with a snap of fingers, they could actually hold a mass rallies. And you've seen that in photos and videos, mass rallies of tens of thousands of people. Imagine the following scene, 23rd of May, 1965, four months before the uh, massacre. It was the 45th anniversary of the Indonesian Communist Party. Celebrated in the largest stadium in Indonesia that could fill 110,000 people sitting, fill it to capacity. And yep. there's still 100,000 people milling around the streets and, and parking lot around the stadiums. So red flags everywhere, billboards, Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, of course. Truly a glorious uh, view to hold. But this same party four months ago destroyed to, rub, to rubble without resistance. And the Bolshevik party, how many did they have before the October revolution? 8,000 members. They did not, they never, I don't think they ever fill any room. Right, They wouldn't be able even to have this meeting because they're living under a Assad repression. They want the Russian Revolution, a revolution that spread even all the way to Indonesia. And what is the difference? A leadership tempered in the ideas, program, method, and addition of uh, Marxism ideas 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 because if you have wrong theory from the start it doesn't matter if you have millions of members you will be defeated in a moment of truth happen to PKI. they have mass followings leadership had the wrong theory they have a wrong method as well we mentioned about the stalinite bureaucratic method in running a party where instead of actually raising the political level of the comrades or caters they remove people it is easier actually sometimes you know uh someone who's done work, sometimes like, ah, this, this comrade cannot do anything, replace <laughs> it with this comrade. There's always that pressure. Problem. It's convenient, so but okay. it doesn't educate. Created yes men, created obedient fools. But if you have the right theory, you have the right method and tradition, even if you're a party of minority, but if you know what is to be done, you will conquer the masses. That's the lessons of the October Revolution. So we have the duty today to learn this lesson by millions of lives of Indonesian working class. So we don't, repeat this defeat because awesome. so we can move forward to the future and complete the task of revolution that has been started by our uh, forefathers and our you know, uh, people behind us. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So, if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.